Good morning to <clears throat> each of you. I have sometimes struggled with the comments that I hear about people, that people make about um, a favored passage of scripture. Um, but I do think that we probably all have, and the, and the reason for that is that all of scripture is equally important. And, and when we start saying that we have favorite, there, the tendency, I think, could be that we start neglecting other passages at, because of, of that. And so I want to be careful that I don't do that um, in any way. But Philippians 2 would certainly be among one of those passages that is my favorite. Um, and I do, because it is so packed, it is so... Powerful. Um, there's just a lot there, and um, and it is it is a favorite of mine. Just thinking back over what we learned about the church in Philippi in chapter one, it's the first European church, a town about the size of Warrington with no synagogue and apparently very few, if any, Jews. And Paul had a unique bond with this group of believers as reflected in this letter uh, that he wrote to encourage them. Um, and it's a powerful letter. It's an encouraging letter. But unlike most of the other epistles, there's not a um, doctrinal or um, conflict that, he is, that the letter is focused on. Now, yes, he does address some things in the course of the letter, but it's not like there's this major issue that he is trying to correct them. But rather, he's encouraging them. He's gently guiding this young church and that these believers would stay on the path of truth. And while we see joy emanating from the gospel, from this epistle in many ways, it is Jesus and the gospel that are Paul's primary focus and emphasis, and it's the underlying reason for the joy that he has. <clears throat> the first part of chapter 1, we saw this joyful koinonia, or fellowship, or connection that Paul expressed with these believers here, not because they had so much in common socially or, and personally, but rather they had a shared love for Jesus and the gospel. But then Paul made part, clear in the last part of the chapter that everything he does is for the sake of the gospel. More than anything else, that is what he focuses on. The, his own reputation and personal ambitions are put on a side to promote the reputation of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Even his own comforts and desires were of secondary importance and of a much lower priority. And so he's challenging the Philippian believers to cultivate that type of an approach to life. Is it for the sake of Jesus Christ, or is there some other reason that I am doing what I'm doing? So I want to, the text is the first 11 verses of Philippians 2. Let's stand together as we read this. <clears throat> it's from the English Standard Version. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. This passage is so densely packed it truly deserves multiple sermons, but we're going to try to just summarize this into one and, and focus on the overall message here this morning. But these are 11 incredibly beautiful and poetic verses, and um, I've entitled this morning's message, Selfless Humility. <clears throat> so we'll start in verse 1, and... Um, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and I'm going to read that from the King James Version as well, there, there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now, I don't know whether the rest of you can relate or not. This verse has always kind of puzzled me. Um, what does it mean? And um, what is Paul saying here? And what does it really have to do with the verses that follow? To me, it always just felt sort of random and wasn't sure what it all meant. So the word if generally indicates that there is a question or, a, uh, or at least a conditional statement that follows. You know, if this, then this. Um, however, multiple commentators, I would say most commentators, uh, I didn't read any that didn't agree with this idea, that these really are not conditional statements and probably a better rendition of the original language would be using the word since rather than if. And so the word since would mean that this has already been established. This is reality. So since this is the way it is, then this. And, and so that, that was helpful to a degree uh, to understand this. Lenski uh, is a, an early 20th century Lutheran exegetical commentator um, that has an extensive grasp and understanding of the Greek language. 
And he believes that English translations as a whole have failed to capture what really was behind this verse the, and the intended meaning of the verse. He sees it as four separate exhortations that stand apart from verse 2. And it's not linked to verse 2 in any way. You notice the end of these, there's a comma. It's like it ties into the next verse. And they aren't interconnected as we read in, in most English translations. Um, one note on this, I have learned in my Bible study that the original Greek manuscripts, for the most part and maybe entirely, did not have any punctuation. Now just think about that. When a translator is translating something, how do you know where what go, you know, where something begins and where something ends? Um, and so there's a lot of interpretation that clearly goes into translation. But Lenske's translation from the Greek for verse 1 is as follows, and he adds words in parentheses to give additional clarity. But he would understand the Greek to have meant this. If, accordingly, there is any admonition, let it be in connection with Christ or in Christ, if any solos, let it be of love. If any fellowship, let it be of, the, of spirit. And if any such fellowship, let it be tender mercies and compassions. Now that is significantly different than what most of English translations read. I am not saying that he's absolute, that he's right. Uh, but it is interesting to think about it this way that rather than these being statements if or since statements leading up to verse 2, rather they are fully contained within this verse. Um, and the four exhortations link together, and we're to offer admonition because of or in light of our connection with Christ, and it also means that we're to offer comfort or solace out of love for each other, and that both of these flow out of and are types of genuine spiritual koinonia or fellowship that we enjoy. And this is the second time that Paul is using the term koinonia here in this chapter. First it was a joyful koinonia, and now it's the koinonia of spirit, that there's this fellowship of spirit, a spiritual connection and bond that comes with this. There is simply a strong spiritual bond that develops between believers who are connected with Jesus Christ and love each other, and this koinonia is powerful. Now, I, um, like I said, I don't know whether this is truly the best way of describing it or not, but to me it was eye-opening at least, and I don't believe it takes away from anything in this passage to think about it in this way. And so I'd like for you to, to challenge you a little bit along that way, that perhaps this verse uh, does not simply lead into verse 2, but rather it's a statement uh, of its own. <clears throat> Going on to verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of in full accord and of one mind. <clears throat> 
So Paul now states that his joy would be filled to overflowing or complete if he saw the Philippian believers living in authentic unity or um, being of the same mind. And that's a, big, that's a big call if you think about it. Being of the same mind. Paul is saying, my joy would be complete or my joy would be full to see you being of the same mind. So what does he mean by that? It does, it does not mean that everyone is cloned and has to think the same way about everything. That's not what, that is not what this means. But I believe what it does mean, it is knowing, it is an awareness that we are all committed to the same cause, and that is Jesus Christ. We're of the same mind because it's, we're all on Christ's team, if you will. Through the next two verses then, Paul, I believe, elaborates on what being of the same mind means. And he gives clarity. There's four statements that are made along with two contrasting not statements. Um, in the past, I've referenced a book by Douglas Hyde called Leadership, Dedication and Leadership. He was a communist who became a Christian back in the 50s, I believe it was. And he explains how communists succeeded in their propaganda, their program, if you will. He was a member of the Communist Party for 20 years, and he understood their philosophy. And he said, he pointed out that communists never ask a man to do a mean little job. It's never something small. But they always ask him boldly to take, undertake something that will cost him. They make big demands, and they get a ready response, ready response. Mr. Hyde calls the willingness to sacrifice as one of the most important factors in the success of the Communist um, Party and, and the spreading of that political thought. Even the youths in the movement are expected to study, to serve, to give, and to obey, and this is what attracts and holds them in the party. I think in a sense, that is what Paul is calling us to do with this be of the same mind. He's calling us to a high standard, the highest standard, that which was exemplified by Jesus Christ himself. Be of the same mind. Be committed to the same cause for the same reasons, be on the same team, so to speak. If that were to happen, Paul says that would bring him the most joy. It would completely fill his cup of joy because it best demonstrates who Jesus is and it ultimately exalts him. So having, uh, so we're to be of the same mind 
And we are, so the first aspect of this is that we're to have the same love. And I don't know exactly the same love, I would say, has to do, points back to Jesus as to loving the way that he loved us. We're to be loving our brothers and sisters in the church for these same reasons, that he loved us. And we choose to love each other, not because of such a close, uh, I don't know, kinship, that, it, that everything just connects, but we love because we're all part of the same family. We're on the same team. We're in the same kingdom in service to the same king, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So why would we choose not to love a fellow citizen given that our king loved us, each one of us, to the point of dying for us and redeemed us and delivered us from Satan's kingdom of slavery? So we're called, the first aspect of being of the same mind is we're to have the same love. And then he continues, be in full accord. And, uh, and so we're, we're to do so with full accord, it says of the same mind or, uh, and so forth as well. But we're to do this being in full accord or united in spirit. When we have that koinonia connection, that fellowship, that bond, it's a supernatural connection. There is camaraderie and kinship that is demonstrated when we're pulling together in the same direction. You know, the most powerful team of horses is useless unless they're actually working together, pulling together in the direction desired by their master. And I think similar for us as a church body is that it's through working together. By working together, we accomplish far more than all of us individually pursuing our own ambitions. But it's the collective working together. We're to be united in spirit, working for the same cause, uh, being invested in that way. Goes on to verse 3 then. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So here we have a negative statement and we have a positive statement. But be of the same mind by, in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. It's interesting, the Greek word that is translated humility was not found in secular Greek writings. I don't think, know if the word even existed. And that was true even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There is no such word found. This was a radically countercultural concept at this time. Josephus is the historian of this period, or one of the historians, and he did use a form of this word that's translated humility, but it was in the context of it being a fault or a deficiency in character. 
it was not considered a positive thing. And it certainly was not a virtue that it was to be promoted. The, the pagan and the secular view of manhood at that time, and probably even today, to a large degree, is, was self-assertiveness. Basically, you have to put yourself out there. You have to stand up for what is right. And only, yeah, when um, imposing, going to the length of imposing one's will on others, if you had the power to do that, that's what you did. And that's how you demonstrated who was manly, who was in control. When anyone gave in to others, bowed to their command, demands, he did so only under compulsion because he had no other recourse. You never did that of your own will. It was a sign of weakness and deserving of public disgrace and shame. And that is what this humility is. Paul is calling these believers to conduct themselves in such a way that was shameful to the general population. He's calling them to genuinely put every other believer first on their list of significance and ourselves at the bottom of that list. Now, that, even for us today, that is not easily done. However, every believer is to approach life that way. And when every believer is doing, is looking out for the best interests of others, we will all benefit from it in the long run. But this is so polar opposite of natural man and the culture in which we live where the idea is that we're to look out for ourselves first and foremost above anything else. But he starts this by saying do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And I believe Paul is really identifying why humility and preferring others is so difficult. I believe our natural inclination is to do everything from selfish ambition and conceit. And he's calling us to do nothing from that perspective. That is, those two things, our selfish ambitions and our conceit, are the biggest obstacles to humility, as well as that of being of the same mind that he's calling us all to. <clears throat> I find it interesting to contrast this with the fall of Lucifer that we read about in Isaiah 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. 
Lucifer was saying, I will do this. Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done. And that really is the difference between um, the whole idea of selfishness or the selfish ambitions and conceit and humility, where we're considering others ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> we're never going to have the joy that Paul expresses in the, this letter as long as we sis, insist on putting ourselves above others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <clears throat> so we are looking out for the interests of others. And I kind of subtitled this or whatever, categorized this as brotherhood. And then he, but he also says, don't only look out for your own interests. It doesn't mean you don't, you have to look out for yourself. I mean, there's just, uh, we do need to look out for ourselves. But he says, not only, but the interests of others as well. What Paul is saying here is that no one is better off individually pursuing our own interests, yet that is exactly what we tend to gravitate toward. Who are the others that Paul is referring to here? It doesn't say. However, primarily, I would say, given the context, he is referring to fellow believers in a local church. It's written to the church. That's who he's speaking, he's writing to, who he's referring to in this. But I don't believe it's restricted to that. Paul is laying out a superior approach rather than focusing on myself. Focus, rather than focusing on my, my interests and disregarding what others think, we mutually help each other. And that's what brotherhood is. Something that can easily be lost in an age of extreme individualism and self-affirmation. But what I find interesting is that this brotherhood can never be achieved or obtained if our motives are even secretly insincere. This is not something that we go into to see what we get out of it, where there's an underlying selfishness that we are trying to disguise. Wearsby writes in his commentary, nothing of value is achieved in God's kingdom apart from genuine sincerity and unselfishness. We can do a lot of work in God's kingdom with wrong attitudes. We can even do good work. But what he's saying here, there's really nothing of value achieved if we're not doing it out of a sincere heart and unselfishly. Jesus taught, he that loses his life will gain it. And he who is out to gain his life has already lost it. And that's exactly what Paul is writing about here, is that if we're trying to preserve ourselves, we've already lost it. We need to be willing to give up what we have. 
It is true that if 100 others are looking out for me, I'm going to benefit. If we participate or buy into brotherhood for what we get out of it, we're never really going to receive the blessings awaiting those that truly do it out of just wanting to help and their love for others. And so any secret, insincere selfishness is going to destroy the fruitful rewards that are available to us. I believe the children's song, J-O-Y, does a good job of summarizing this idea in these verses. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. J-O-Y. One of the paradoxes of the Christian life is that the more we give, the more we receive. And the more we sacrifice, the more that God blesses. And so these are the four principles applied. Have the same love. Uh, have the same love. Are united in spirit. Consider others more significant than ourselves in humility. Look out for the interests of others. And we will be of the same mind, which is the mind of Christ in verse 5 then. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as the King James says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. I like the way this says, have this mind among yourselves. He said, be of the same mind and have Christ's mind among yourselves. Paul now gives the ultimate example of what verses 1 to 4 look like. And I don't believe if we, if we don't adequately understand these first four verses... I'm not sure that we can accurately understand verses 5 to 11. However, verses 5 to 11, simply, they just perfectly embody exactly what he described in the first four verses. Warren Wiersbe also describes having the mind of Jesus as an attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And to do this, I will gladly lay them aside and pay whatever price is necessary. Willing to lay down the privileges that we have for whatever price, simply to help others. Being of the same mind is really having the mind of Jesus Christ, which we see described so beautifully in verses 6 to 11. And these six, these, uh, yeah, six verses could be described in many ways. Uh, some refer to it as the Jesus hymn and actually believe that it may have been one of the first hymns used in the church, and in, in the early church. It is poetically beautifully, it is deeply theological. It's concise yet comprehensive. It's doctrinally rich. It is the first doctrinal statement in Scripture on Christ's preexistence, his incarnation, and exaltation. And it literally was one of those doctrinal statements that was used uh, over and over again throughout the early church. There's symmetrical contrast throughout this. <clears throat> In verses 6 through 8, we have Christ's self-humiliation. And um, as he walks down through here, there's just this progression of what all he gave up, what Jesus gave up to come to us. He existed before coming to earth, 
Um, he was in the form of God. And he didn't count equality with God to be a thing that is grasped. Um, he didn't rid himself of his divinity, but he chose to limit himself while he was on this earth. He emptied himself. He became one of his created beings. He came, became a creature. Um, I've used this example before, but it's a lot like us becoming like a little Lego man. Um, although Legos don't have any life, but it's, that's kind of in essence of what it was. Or maybe another comparison would be like us becoming a mosquito or an ant or a worm. That's how much he emptied himself to come to this earth. It's probably even far greater than that. He gave up the form of God, but then he took on the form of man as well. And um, he was born in the likeness of man. He was found in human form. Again, that word, he humbled himself to the point of death. As Jesus faced the cross, the glory of the Father was so uttermost in his mind Jesus said in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And then the most humiliating thing is of all, the death on the cross. Naked, on display for everyone to see, public shame and scorn, he was humiliated to a point beyond what we can comprehend. And then verses 7 to 9, we have the exaltation, because that wasn't the end. The humiliation allowed God to exalt Jesus in ways that were not possible otherwise. First word, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because Jesus emptied himself, because Jesus humbled himself, because Jesus was obedient and died on the cross, God, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now think about it, that includes literally everyone. If you're not yet born, if you're living now, or if you've been buried. That includes everyone. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The whole purpose of Christ's humiliation and exaltation is the glory of God. That is why Jesus did it. It wasn't for any kind of personal gain, but he did it to the glory of God. Jesus exemplified selfless humility to a degree that we can't comprehend. And I believe that he's calling us to give ourselves to help selfless humility in our interactions with our spiritual brothers and sisters as well. And the path to exaltation is selfless humility. It is serving others. Because Jesus emptied himself, God highly exalted him. Because he humbled himself, God gave him an honored name. Because Jesus was obedient unto death, God made every knee bow to him. 
1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The joy of selfless humility comes not only from helping others and sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, but primarily from the knowledge that we are glorifying God. So when we truly are selflessly humble toward others. Yes, there's joy, satisfaction in helping others and so forth, but what should bring us the most joy is because, we're, because this brings honor and glory to God, and that's why we're doing it. Paul is calling each of us to be of the same mind, that of Jesus Christ, by loving each other, being united in spirit, I'm like counting others more significant than ourselves, looking out for the interests of others. And Jesus was the perfect example. He gave up everything, far more than we will ever have. He even gave up his very life. He did this all, yes, out of love for us, but he did it to honor his Father by saying, not my will, but yours be done, versus I will do this. And by doing so with genuine sincerity, God exalted him to the highest place there is. And, that, and he deserves that. But God wants to exalt us as well as we follow Christ's pattern and live a life that um, that honors him, and then do so with selfless humility. I'd like for you to turn in your songs of faith and praise to number 220, and there is a, another paraphrase or translation of this prayer that I would want us to read together somewhat in closing, or in closing here. <clears throat> and I'm also going to put it up here on the screen, but... Um, I was like, if you have the book in front of you, you can see that a lot easier. I'd like for us, as we read this together, collectively, to change the first word from your to our. And, um, and let's read this together at this time. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's stand together for prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture. Thank you for 
the example of Jesus Christ and the incredible selfless humility that he demonstrated by leaving the unimaginable beauties and powers and luxuries of heaven to come to this lowly earth as a human and ultimately die for us. But then you exalted him, and thank you so much for that. And Lord, I pray that we too could be of the same mind, that we could, that we would have love for each other, that we would be united in spirit, and that we genuinely and humbly consider other people's, uh, other people more significant than even ourselves. As we look out for the interests of others above our own, and Lord, none of this is easy, but at the same time, you're calling us to do that. And by your strength, by your power, it is possible. And I just ask that you would uh, cultivate in each one of us a desire to do this for your glory, because you, this is what, you, what brings you the most glory. And we want to do that because of that. And I just pray that you would forgive us of those many times that we have failed in the past, but that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to live this kind of a life going forward. Be with us as we go throughout this week. I ask that you would guide and direct us. Thank you also for the noon meal that has been prepared for us, that has been shared. I ask that we could... Uh, further fellowship around food, uh, physical food, even as we have enjoyed spiritual food. ask that you would bless our time together, and uh, may, we, may your kingdom be furthered in our interaction. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.